Welcome to the 902 podcast, the official podcast of the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm Captain John Vick, and I want to thank you for listening. This podcast will give you an inside look at LSO with topics and guests to discuss public safety issues impacting Lancaster County. Be sure to subscribe for highlights on news, cases, and the people working for you at LSO. You can also follow us across social media at LSO Nebraska on Facebook, X, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Once we got back into the station, it seemed very chaotic there as well. Everyone was yelling. I was new, and I can tell by people's expressions that something was really, really wrong. I knew Jimmy was hurt real bad, but didn't know how he was doing or if he was even alive. But I wanted to know if he was okay. A supervisor came in and said, yep. Jimmy's in surgery right now, and I think he's going to be okay. They think he's going to live. I was relieved to know that. That was all I cared about at that moment. They got me in an interview room, and I'm thinking, this is where they bring suspects, the bad guy room. Those cameras in there and everything, I'm thinking, oh, man, am I in trouble. I didn't know what to think. I started second-guessing myself. I felt really alone. As long as Jimmy was okay, I'll take whatever's coming to me. I did the best I could. I was covered in blood. I had short sleeve shirt on. It was caked all over my arms and cracking when I moved. I had been in there long enough, and finally someone came in and asked if I needed anything, and I said a cup of water would be good. A detective came in later and said, you're probably going to want to talk to your wife. I said, okay, can you take me to a phone? They let me out of the interrogation room and brought me to a private office. I called my wife, Elsa, who remembers this all to this day. I said, honey, I'm going to be a little bit late. I'll talk to you a little later, okay? Except I called her by her first name, too, and I never do that. I always called her honey or sweetie, and then she said, something doesn't sound right. Are you okay? I said, yep, I'll talk to you when I get home. They put me back in the interrogation room. I'm still covered with blood. Every time I'm looking down my arms, they're beet red from Jimmy's blood. Finally, someone came in and said, okay, we'll get you into a shower and change your clothes. They got in my locker, got my clothes, the evidence technicians took all of my uniform stuff, clothes, and everything. I didn't know what was going on. Then my lawyer showed up. His eyes were glassy. He had lipstick on his face. His speech was a little slurred. Obviously, he'd been out at a bar. I told the union rep, this guy can't represent me. Then they realized this condition and sent for another lawyer. I had to give a thumbnail sketch of what happened to our internal affairs detective first. Then the attorney general's office came in. I thought the AG investigator was the worst one I'd ever seen. He grilled me, but not before putting on tape that I had not one, but two attorneys. I was a young officer. I'm thinking, I thought my partner was dying. I just killed someone, and I have no idea what's going on. It was a hard thing to go through after the shooting. When I got home that night, I just had this terrible feeling that I screwed something up. I had a lot of self-doubt. I was beating myself second-guessing myself that I should have taken the shot earlier. I should have had a backup flashlight. Why am I so clumsy? All these things kept coming into my head. I kept reviewing the scene over and over and flashing back. And that is not the story of a law enforcement officer at the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office, but it is the story of a real law enforcement officer, and uh, that account is from an excerpt of a book called Shots Fired, The Misunderstandings, Misconceptions, and Myths About Police Shootings by Joseph Laughlin and Kate Clark Flora. But that's uh, what we're going to talk about today is 
officer-involved shootings in our force investigations team. And to do that, um, Sheriff Wagner, Chief Deputy Houchin here as always. Thanks for being here, guys. Good afternoon. Happy Friday. And a return guest to the show. I've uh, been here a couple times now, Investigator Jeremy Schwarz. Um, you know, you first joined us on our, our episode about the tactical response unit. And, I did. And uh, came back for another episode with our Tyler Goodrich missing person case. But we're, we're happy to have you back today to talk about force investigations. Man of many talents. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, appreciate it. So one of the questions that we get a lot of times when we're talking about officer-involved shootings is why don't, why don't we just treat law enforcement officers the same way that we would treat a suspect um, in, in any other shooting or homicide case that, that we, we investigate? Is it, is it different? Is it? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, one, we are one of the few agency or professions that are given the, the part of our responsibility is we could have to use lethal force mm-hmm. in our job. And with that, um, in the United States, there's just a little bit under a thousand shootings um, where the individual uh, is deceased each year. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of people think that it's a lot higher than that too, but um, that's the going rate about every year. So yeah, um, the whole situation is unique and different than it is when somebody goes in and tries to do a arm robbery at a gas station and shots are fired. Usually uh, we are there uh, in our professional capacity and something horrible transpires and uh, we end up having to use lethal force. And, you know, unique is probably a good word, Sheriff. We were talking about that just before we came on, on air. It's not, it's not special treatment, but we just have to acknowledge the fact that it's a unique, probably one of the most unique types of investigations that we do. Absolutely. You know, we're, we want to make sure that the the rights of the officer are upheld and that the truth comes out about what happened. Uh, we want to make sure that the rights of the suspect are are upheld as well. And um, so you know you got almost competing interests there, if you would. But yeah, it's a it's a really it's a fine a fine line, if you would. And, and then there are are separate components. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's did the officer have did the officer use force that was legally justified mm-hmm. according to law? Okay, that's one component. Mm-hmm. The other component is, did the officer follow the policy of our agency when, you know, when using, using uh, deadly force? And that's another component. Yep. And, and they're not mutually inclusive. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, generally, and I know Jeremy will talk about this, but <clears throat> some investigators will handle the legally justifiable portion, the statutorily justifiable portion, and other officers will in, in investigate the the policy uh, of mm-hmm. the agency and whether or not that was justified. So that's the two separate prongs, if you would, of any investigation of this nature. And, you know, and, and Jeremy, with a, any other citizen off the street, um, there, there are certainly statutes in, in Nebraska and every other state in the United States that provide for, um, you know, your your ability to defend yourself or someone else. That's correct. But law enforcement officers are unique in the fact that, whereas you know, 
other people may have the option, not always, but may have the option to disengage. And, you know, we always say that the, the, the best fight to win is the one that you're never in in the first place. But there are some times that as, as a part of our, our job and our oath that we take um, to defend our communities, we do not always have that option to just walk away. No, we don't. And sometimes uh, the person who is with, you know, that has the weapon and uh, um, dictates the situation and compels the officer to respond in a manner that's appropriate. And sometimes that includes using lethal force. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially if there's um, innocent lives at stake, uh, that officer doesn't have the ability to retreat from that situation. He's obligated to uh, defend the life of that person yep. and uh, and use the appropriate force. And and I think we always we kind of put it in in the context that we are always seeking the most peaceful resolution that that the subject will allow. And, yes. And uh, you know sometimes that that choice we're always trying to deescalate. We're always trying to. I, I love it when we can we can see in a report that um, someone was taken into custody without incident, uh, but uh, but a lot of that is is sometimes out of our control uh, because it's it, it really goes back to uh, the the most peaceful resolution that the subject will allow, and uh, that's what we're always striving to do. So there is still a chance. Um, it's you know it's it's rare, but it's still something that we take very seriously as our responsibility as law enforcement officers to ensure that we are following, um, to the sheriff's point, not only the, the policies of our, of our agency and, uh, you know, the, the rules and things that we've, we've set up, um, for our workplace and, and the way that we're going to handle business, but also to make sure that, uh, although we are authorized by law to use force and sometimes take lives, um, when, when the situation dictates, but that we're following the law and doing that correctly. So we take our, our, obligation to investigate these things extremely seriously um, because that's ultimately what uh, what keeps the the trust of the public is is our ability to do that um, successfully so that's really what we kind of want to dive into and, and talk with you about today and um, we'll we'll get into the history of this a little bit but kind of your your qualifications for this Jeremy you're a very active member of our force investigations team and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that um, how that came about here in a little bit, but let's walk through, you know, a, an officer involved shooting happens and we're, th this could happen for any type of, of force investigation. It doesn't have to be a shooting. Um, sometimes it could be, you know, just a, a hand to hand type of force that we're looking at, but just for, I think for, for simplicity's sake, we're going to focus more on officer involved shootings because those are, are probably the, 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 the bigger ones that, uh, that we would employ the force investigation team for. But let's talk a little bit about what happens after that shooting takes place. Um, you know, the, a lot of times it'll, it'll start with some sort of call, um, some sort of law enforcement response. And sometimes these things go very quickly out in the field. Um, and it, it can, it can go, we'll talk about a few examples here, but uh, what can start out is a fairly benign contact without a whole lot of indication that something is going to go wrong within a matter of seconds. Sometimes you can hear on the radio shots fired. I've got a party down, start medical. Right. And, um, I guess that's, that's really kind of how this whole process gets started. So what, what happens after that? Well, the thing too, we got, you know, 
the reason why this unit was started, you know, the sheriff has a, a choice. He can have us investigate it. Mm-hmm. He can have an outside agency investigate it or have the, the force team investigate it. So mm-hmm. a lot of times I would say we don't, if it's our deputies, mm-hmm. we're probably not going to be, I guess, the lead agency in investigating that. And that's for the transparency part of it. So correct. that's um, with our team on, on that, um, I guess, <clears throat> with the Nebraska State Patrol and the Lincoln Police Department, um, that's when they are involved in something and we aren't, that's when our unit ends up going and being the lead agency in those uh, incidents. Mm-hmm. So generally there's, regardless of who conducts the investigation though, we're starting two separate but parallel investigations at that point. That's right. And so let's, let's focus first on the, the criminal, we'll call it the criminal side of the investigation to make sure that, the force that was used was lawful. So regardless of which agency, um, which, which agency takes that, uh, takes that assignment, what are kind of some of the things that are going on after, after the smoke clears, so to speak? Well, I'll take you to just kind of a general, once the shots are fired, the radio calls made and medical shows up, you know, the officer or officers, uh, whether that be, um, from the sheriff's office, the Lincoln Police Department, or the Nebraska State Patrol, or even a federal agency that we may partner with um, at the scene, uh, those officers are they're separated. Um, they're treated for uh, medical issues if that is uh, needs to be addressed. And then most importantly, um, a supervisor is reaching out to those um, those officers involved in going over a a public safety statement, and that's to obtain critical information that's necessary for uh, the start of the investigation. And those are questions. Um, there's roughly, I want to say, f- eight to nine. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ben. They are seven. Seven. And uh, those questions are asked, and uh, uh, we use that information to start our investigation, and then uh, those officers are assigned a peer support and evidence officer, and then those officers are transported back to uh, their respective um, team station or here at the sheriff's office, at the Hall of Justice, um, or even um, the Nebraska State Patrol. And from there, that's where they have an opportunity to uh, meet with their union lawyer, um, and then that's where the uh, collection of evidence uh, takes place and uh, and they have a chance to talk with their command staff about what the next process is for them in terms of administrative leave. And then we um, designate a time to have a uh, interview with them. If you want a challenging career, a career where you can make a difference in your life, your family's life and the lives of those in your community, Come and join the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. To learn more or to apply, visit us online at www.joinlso.com. So, Ben, that's probably another good example of public safety statement is not something that we would read to um, another citizen that we're investigating after a shooting or after a homicide. Correct. It's, it's a unique... It's, 
something that's unique to law enforcement officers and maybe what maybe you can talk about just some of the questions that are on there and why we ask them yeah of course yeah, like we said the we are ordering them at that time to talk mm-hmm. they can't say you know i i i don't want to talk i I want my attorney because mm-hmm. these, these are directed. And if they don't, I mean, um, discipline can occur. Right. And the good thing is, is most deputies, at least here in our agency, we've done training with them on this sheet. And so this is not going to be a shock to them. And we've also talked to the union attorneys and they have agreed that these questions are important mm-hmm. and need to be answered. So mm-hmm. the first one is, is what type of force did you use? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it could be a taser. It could be, you know, something other than your firearm. A baton. A baton. Or, what, yes. Yeah. Um, then it says, if you discharge the firearm, describe the direction and number of shots fired. And that's important, one, so that uh, we're always taught with our backdrop uh, to make sure it's clear. But sometimes, you know, there's a building there. Maybe nobody was there. But we want to make sure we don't have anybody else injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it is, uh, did anyone uh, else uh, discharge a firearm? And if yes, tell who did that and what directions they did. Uh, describe the location of any known injured person. Um, that's kind of self-explanatory on that. Are any of the su- outstanding sus- are there any outstanding suspects? Mm-hmm. So did somebody else run off at this time that we need to know about? Um, Suspect information, uh, you skip that if uh, they're not there, but if they are, if they didn't run off, but if they did, what direction, how long ago, what type of weapon, uh, what crime did the suspect wanted for, describe any other safety risk posed by the suspect. And then number six, provide a description and the location of any known victims and or witnesses. And then the seventh is provide a description and the location of any known evidence and audio recordings. Now, one of the things that has really changed uh, in the last several years is body cameras. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think at first some law enforcement officers were like, gosh, they're watching this. They're going to know. But in our experience, especially with the, the force team, it, it gives us a clear picture right away. And 99.9% of the time, it shows why the officer did what they did and that it was totally justified. Well, I, I think now, the, the, you know, and, and the, one of the first thoughts, and not even necessarily after a, you know, a shooting, but any, any type of incident where um, there's a question about what took place, the, the first thought that goes through an officer's head is, gosh, I hope my body camera was on. Absolutely. You know, and, and it didn't always used to be that way because mm. um, there was, there were, oh, gosh, is it going to catch me doing something, you know, screwing something up? Or, um, But I, I think most Am cops... I singing in my car? Yeah. Are, it, you know, <laughs> but I, I think most cops now are like, gosh, I, I sure hope my body camera was on um, because it's going to answer so many questions. And, yes. And you guys, I'm sure, sure find that on the, on the backside when you're investigating, um, that it, it certainly frees up, you know, a lot of time for you. Um, it doesn't tell the whole story. No, uh, cameras, body-worn cameras and car video cameras are great. They supplement the investigation, uh, but the cameras do have limitations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and with that, we have to keep in mind that they don't always capture everything uh, that we see 
and we here because mm-hmm. our cameras are focused and pointed in a certain direction and we could have been looking to our left or to our right. And uh, uh, so there are limitations to the cameras, um, but they do supplement the investigation and they are very helpful. And uh, we have the ability to go back and go frame by frame and look for those tiny pieces of uh, information that the officer talked about in their interview. Right. Well, another thing too is where we wear them and how you would be holding your handgun during a uh, a shooting. It, it can cover up the camera real quick, but you can't see what you need. You know what the officer is looking at. So you're you're so correct that you know even though they're a great piece of tool, they're in, you can't just watch that and say, oh, it's over. You know the, we we have what it is. We've got to do the one whole facet. Thing. One facet. One facet. Yep. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. You know, this is a little bit nuanced into the weeds on this, but, you know, you mentioned we're compelling them to answer those questions. And another thing that's unique about these cases is that, um, you know, if if you've watched any sort of cop shows on TV, you know, you're familiar with Miranda rights and things like that. Law enforcement officers don't don't just check their rights at the door. Um, Law enforcement officers still have, you know, a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, um, a, a right to remain silent, all, all the same things that any other citizen has. However, there are times that we, you know, need to compel them to answer questions because we have a unique business need in law enforcement to know. Is and, the, and our job as yeah. law enforcement is make sure nobody else is hurt or, you know, if we have a suspect at large that the public could be endangered by, we mm-hmm. need to know that ASAP so we can uh, continue our search and do that. And. So the courts have come up with, and Garrity is the the name that was in the original court case, but it's it essentially um, created some rules that the courts view um, testimony by law enforcement officers, but also other just other government employees. Um, that if if you're compelled to answer a question, uh, there are certain certain cases in which that can't be used against you in a criminal proceeding. So there's a little bit of nuance here. Um, again, that's that's in the weeds a little bit and and some of the legalese, but just understand that there's kind of some complex decision-making that goes into how we can ask what questions. Uh, and, and again, just all goes back to the uniqueness of these investigations. Well, as you were talking about the cr- criminal case and the internal investigation, um, the criminal case can share with the uh, internal investigation, but mm-hmm. it can't go the other way. Yes. So, so criminal it, investigators can share information with IA or internal affairs investigators, investigators, but information that internal investigators learn. I don't don't want to confuse people about, uh, you know, the difference. Internal affairs investigators are there on the other side of that, trying to determine if there were any policies that were violated, Mm -hmm. like the sheriff said, about the, you know, the rules of the agency specifically. So criminal investigators can share information with those internal investigators, but because of legal restrictions, the internal investigators cannot necessarily share all of their information with the criminal investigators because some of those things are not admissible in court. Correct. And that's where Garrity you were talking about comes in where you can uh, impel somebody to compel somebody to, to speak or mm-hmm. they can lose their job if uh, they refuse to. So yeah, those, those are two major difference ones. And a lot of times here at our agency, we'll let the criminal investigators go with what they need to do. And then after that, whatever needs um, the internal investigators need to follow up on. That's when they do it after that. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get into a little bit of the specifics about what we're doing with those investigations, Jeremy, and, and, you know, our current practices today, but sheriff, when it comes to the, you know, 
administrative leave, what what types of things are you thinking about when it comes to administrative leave, and why would we put someone on administrative leave? Well, they've just been through a very traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need some time to decompress. They need some time to, um, uh, you know, speak with their counsel and mm-hmm. determine uh, what their next course of action is going to be. And then it's our responsibility to make sure that our policies were followed and that the the deputy is is able to return to duty without that psychological burden of having just taken a human life. Mm-hmm. It also gives it a chance for the investigators some time to get a hold of what actually transpired and do that so that we are able to tell the public, hey, this officer or this deputy did it properly, and now that they can come back. And you can't do that usually in 24 hours. This isn't like Mm -hmm. television and all that. Some of these take a lot of time to get through. And it's like the sheriff said, too, it gives them a mental break. Because we don't interview the officers, you know, we wait 48 hours to conduct the interview with them. Mm-hmm. So, so part of it is wellness to, to you know, take care yep. of the officer because yep. they've been through a traumatic, psychologically potentially damaging experience. Part of it is functional um, with, with just the, the logistical needs of the investigation. Correct. But part of it, too, and I know, Sheriff, we've talked about this, there, there is a, a community caretaking part of this. I mean, we have an obligation. Obviously, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're watching out for the welfare of our, of our officers. But we also want to make sure that before we return that person to duty, that they're not a, a danger to the public. Right. Either, either A, because they're not mentally ready to go out and, and do the job that the public needs them to do, or B, if and it, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. If someone's done something wrong, whether it's, you know, procedurally wrong or even, God forbid, criminally wrong, you know, we have an obligation to, to make sure, that, at least to the extent that we can um, w- within a short amount of time, that we believe that this person followed the law and followed the rules before, they, before um, we return them to duty. And, and, and there's, you know, the public wants to know right away, mm-hmm. but they also want to know that we're conducting a very thorough investigation into the events that took place so that we can provide that factual basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, being hasty with all that stuff just is, is, I mean, it's, the event is done. It's over. Sure. We have the time to do our interviews, do the crime scene investigation, um, handle all those things to everyone's benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Jeremy, while all of this is going on, you and your team um, are doing your work. And, we'll, again, we'll get into some more of the specifics about that, but it's all with the goal of ultimately what what happens with the information that you and your team produce. <clears throat> where, does, where does that information go on the criminal side of the investigation? So once we've had a chance to conduct all the interviews, collect all the evidence... Uh, analyze any video footage, talk to witnesses. Um, It's all compiled and it's put together in a comprehensive um, report. Mm -hmm. And generally those reports uh, range anywhere from 85 plus pages and uh, they're 
And when I say a comprehensive report, I'm taking everything and condensing it into um, a nice report for the county attorney uh, to review and look at and prepare for a grand jury. And uh, that report is also provided to the chief, uh, the sheriff, and uh, what other command staff of the involved agency mm-hmm. um, they all they get a, a copy of the report now that's another different thing that regular citizens don't go through is mm-hmm. what Jeremy just said was is the grand jury and even if we in our investigation feel like that was a completely justified um, officer involved shooting they still because of the state law under by state law on um, they have to go through that and the grand jury has to um, be part of that process. Yeah, so different states handle this different ways, right. but like you said, yes, in in Nebraska, all in custody in in custody deaths, um, and and it can be from from force used by law enforcement, but sometimes it's even suicide. If yes. someone commits suicide when we're attempting to take them into custody, or 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 dies for whatever ever other reason while they're being taken into custody, a grand jury investigation happens. Yeah, a car. You know, if we're in a pursuit in a car. A crash occurs and the suspects or anybody ends up passing, but the suspects end up passing away. Yes, yeah, so there, there has to be a grand jury at that time. So overall, kind of broad steps of of what this looks like, but you know everything from an initial scene investigation um, splits into two as far as making sure that agency policies are followed, making sure that uh, it was legally justifiable under Nebraska state law, ultimately being presented. Um, both to an agency administrator to find out whether or not someone's going to be allowed to come back to duty, but then also to a grand jury to determine whether or not any criminal charges need to be filed. Right. And I think that's the most important thing uh, that the public understands is the force investigation team, our job is to provide the information to the administration of the involved agency or agencies, and then also to the county attorney who then, uh, provides that to a grand jury. Ultimately, it's the grand jury that decides those criminal charges. Mm-hmm. It's not me as the investigator making that opinion mm-hmm. um, or that decision, mm-hmm. uh, but it's the grand jury. Yeah. You're you're investigating and providing those finders of fact with the facts that, that they're going to use to ultimately reach a conclusion. Correct. Yeah. Well, let's we're going to get to the force investigation team in a little bit, but uh, ben, Sheriff, like Jeremy said, we haven't always had a force investigation team. And what what did what did these types of investigations look like in the past? Well, yeah, there's really been an an evolution in these kinds of investigations, and all across the country, all across the country. Um, you know, it seems like we would go 20 years here without an officer involved shooting. Mm-hmm. And so the infrequency in which those investigations were conducted, you just didn't have the, you hadn't developed the skill set mm-hmm. to conduct that investigation. And so we'd call in another agency that that maybe had more experience handling those kinds of things mm-hmm. and handle one prong of the investigation and we would handle the administrative prong of that investigation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then... As the years have evolved, there needs to be transparency in these investigations and 
no no appearance of impropriety. Mm-hmm. So the public really has demanded that if an agency involved in an officer-involved shooting, that an outside agency conduct the investigation to maintain that impartiality. Yeah. And so that really was sort of the birth of the of the uh, force investigation team. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was that kind of the beginning of that whole emphasis uh, on uh, having outside agencies conduct those investigations? Yeah. Um, like the sheriff said, we were, we were lucky. We just did not have that many. In the last several years, we've had a lot more. And, uh, you know, the Lincoln Police Department's been involved in some, and that's how we've ended up being part of that. You know, we went and got a bunch of, once we decided to do this, uh, special training in, in force science. And that training is how and what happens during officer-involved shootings. And uh, so everybody who's on the FIT team has to go to that training to be part of it. And it's, it's like you said, it's it's something that you never, you never want to get good at. You never want to do these enough that you become great at them. However, you have to be great at them. Yeah. I mean... They're one of the most important investigations that uh, you could be involved in. And I was lucky enough when I was in the criminal division as the captain, I was uh, with Jeremy and and, uh, now Captain Pashong, but then Sergeant Pashong being a part of that FIT team and uh, working alongside with the Lincoln Police Department because that Mm -hmm. is who we joined with. And the idea of doing that is let's get a group of individuals who get specially trained on that, who go to these as often as they happen so mm-hmm. that you get some of this expertise on that. Cause, um, I believe back in 2000 in 16, 17 was, uh, a shooting that occurred up by Belmont on North 14th street. Who was that? That was Jermichael Kennedy shooting. Yeah. And that was actually, <clears throat> uh, the first shooting that I was involved in, uh, where I was at working the road mm-hmm. and then, uh, Sergeant Trotter, now retired Captain Trotter, um, had tasked me with bringing the mobile command vehicle. And then uh, a prior criminal sergeant, uh, Sergeant Josh Clark, had asked me to interview the lone witness right. to that shooting. And uh, I think after that one, even though I, I do believe we did a, a fabulous job on that, we kind of learned of, you know what, we need to get a special group of individuals and the Lincoln Police Department teamed up with us. And that's when it was born and it started to occur. Yeah. I mean, and it, you know, in my mind, that was Jeremy, you and I were talking, that was right. It was right after Ferguson. Um, yes. You know, Ferguson is kind of the big flashpoint in, in law enforcement, at least even, um, you know, even before George Floyd that um, called into question law enforcement and their, their response to these, these incidents. And so, you know, we kind of, we, we swung the pendulum, the pendulum all the way to we have to have an outside agency investigate this because it's important for transparency, it's important for public trust. And then we just fine-tune that just a little bit after, at least for us, mm-hmm. after the Jermichael Kennedy shooting because, yes, it is important to maintain that outside, um, that outside agency perspective. But we're, we're lucky here in Lincoln, Lancaster County that you know, we share so many resources that we can we can still maintain that outside agency control of an investigation, mm-hmm. but at the same time still be able to tap into a lot of the resources and expertise, expertise yes. that we share when it comes to crime scene investigations, when it comes to 
interview and interrogation when it comes to all of the various things that you guys do now. Purchasing specialty to specialized equipment. Yeah, to, to sharing sharing that equipment. Yes. So and the big thing too we do is you know, whichever agency was involved in it, the uh, agency that wasn't takes the lead and does specific portions of mm-hmm. the investigation. Like one, the the head of the crime scene will be. Um, the outside agency, they mm-hmm. will be making the call, making the, the choices on who does what. Yeah. And then on the, in, when interviews are done, the outside agency is the one who's doing it with the officers and that part of it so that you do have that outside um, portion of it being taken care of and especially those important areas. Hey, I'm Captain John Vick with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. When it comes to your career, don't settle for good enough. Don't settle for ordinary. We won't either. Be different, be better, be exceptional. Start your future today at joinlso.com. So, Jeremy, sometimes, you know, when we have cases that are out in the public, we get, uh, we get the keyboard warriors on social media that, want to know, well, have you done this? Well, have you done that? Well, why hasn't anybody checked this? And why, you know, um, so talk about what, what are some of the, what are some of the things that, uh, that we're doing in, in these cases? I mean, what are some of the investigative steps? Um, I, I think a lot of people may not know that we're doing, you know, round counts are, are, are a big, a big piece of that. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so after the incident occurs and the officer is brought back to, uh, their respective uh, agency. Uh, most times here in Lincoln, uh, the officers are brought back here to the Hall of Justice. And uh, those officers have a chance to talk with their attorneys. And then after that conversation takes place, uh, the officers are brought into um, a conference room, actually the same conference room in which we're doing the podcast today. Yeah, And uh, we have the ability to record... Um, that uh, evidence collection. And the purpose of that is we want to collect everything uh, from their uniform to their duty belt, uh, to their vest, um, all the way down to their boots. Um, And then we collect all of that. We look at their their weapon. Uh, We ask them if this is their weapon. We count the rounds. Uh, We want to ensure that how they load their magazines, how many rounds, and then how many rounds are missing. They can confirm the numbers that we're counting. And then we collect everything. And then once we've had a chance to do that, uh, then we that officer then is released back to his administration uh, for a meeting with the, uh, the command staff to determine their administrative leave. Mm-hmm. But it's really at that point that the officer has a chance to uh, meet with their family, mm-hmm. uh, change clothes if necessary, if it, depending on what they have left and what we've collected. And uh, then that officer uh, leaves. Now that's if the officer isn't injured, but if the officer is injured and is transported to a hospital, then the, the steps are a little different, but we still have to collect that evidence and it just doesn't take place here at the Hall of Justice. It'll happen at the hospital um, and we have to adapt to that. Mm-hmm. Generally, about 48 to 72 hours after the officer has had a chance to decompress um, and collect his or her thoughts, 
we will have an interview with that officer. And we know that prior to, um, we will have a chance to talk with the attorney. Mm-hmm. The attorney will say, yes, uh, they do want to provide a, a voluntary interview. And then we will set up a date and a time and we will actually come back into this same room because it's, it's a conference room. It's not a, it's not an interview room. It's not the interview room that was talked about in the book. Yeah. The, um, the bad guy room. The interrogation room. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's not the interrogation room that we as cops um, use to interrogate the people that we are investigating. But this is a conference room um, large enough to accommodate the attorneys and the investigators Um, We can sit down, we can look at drawings, maps, we can recreate, reenact situations, but that interview is a cognitive interview. It's a time for the officer to tell us a story and a very detailed story. It's not a yes or no, ask questions, get a response, move to the next question, ask, and then get a response. It's a time for the officer to sit and tell us what occurred. And what's most important is that officer and his attorney or his or her attorney, excuse me, will have the opportunity to review any um, audio or video um, that was collected during the incident. And um, once they've done that, then we do the cognitive interview and then we will go back and based on things that they say, we might want to draw out more information about something that they might have said that we want to expand more on. And those interviews generally can last um, an hour to two hours and sometimes three to four, just depending on how detailed we need to be based on the incidents. Or how long it lasted. Exactly. I mean, a car chase uh, ending up into a crash, ending up into a negotiation, into shots being fired. I mean, Mm -hmm. it really depends because sometimes... If you're just walking up to a traffic stop and all of a sudden a gun comes out, bang, 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 that is such a seconds. Seconds. Yeah. And I think it's important too, that we look at, you know, some officers, depending on how seasoned they are, uh, are less or more detailed in their statements. And we have seen that in some of our previous interviews where, uh, we don't have to do, we don't have to ask as many follow-up questions because the officer was so detailed in their initial storytelling yeah. uh, that we don't have to go back and ask a lot of those uh, follow-up questions uh, to expand upon. Uh, so that really kind of goes into the length of uh, those interviews. You talked about the, the waiting time before doing the interview. Help, help us understand what's the, why don't you just get them when they're fresh, when they're, you know, it just happened. Their, their memory should be the best then, right? Well, there's a lot of research on uh, memory recall. Uh, and when officers are in a dynamic um, incident that's rapidly evolving, um, you know, we have to give those officers time for their memory to consolidate. Okay. And we want to try and capture as much of the information and the best information uh, to... Um, extract that from their memory, uh, for, uh, the case. Mm-hmm. And so the science is out there that talks about generally 48 hours afterwards is about the best time to conduct a cognitive interview. Okay. Uh, the longer you go, uh, tends to, we tend to start losing pieces of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we try to do it within about uh, 48 to 72 hours, but sometimes, 
like in some of our recent shootings, um, we've had to wait a little bit longer because it was actually going into the holiday weekend. Mm-hmm. And so it was decided we would wait a little longer. Or sometimes if you've got someone that's been injured or, or you know, there's other things that present themselves, but 48, 72 hours is kind of your goal right. as far as that, uh, that initial interview. We had a case of shooting back in um, 2018 where the officer was shot and we actually couldn't interview him for a couple of weeks just due to the injury mm-hmm. and uh, things that were going on with that officer that we, we uh, could not conduct a proper interview yeah. without um, having some uh, secondary issues involved. So there's best practices. Right. And then there's just what we have to do. Exactly. Re- yeah. Reality. Reality. So that kind of, we, we touched on force science just a little bit. Right. But maybe help our, help our listeners understand what is the, what is force science and what are some of the concepts that, uh, that you and others who've been through that program learn? So force science is a company out of uh, Chicago, Illinois, uh, founded by Dr. William Lewinsky. Uh, it has evolved uh, where he's had new, he has numerous instructors and he conducts uh, research on um, issues involving uh, speed and dynamics of shootings, uh, movement, uh, motor skills, uh, behavior. Uh, He also looks at attention and vision, um, how we perceive things, our memory recall, uh, just even talking about human error and how human error comes into um, issues involving the use of force. Uh, then we look at our, our training. How does our training play into uh, use of force? Um, there's also forensic considerations that we have to look at, too, when it comes to cartridges. Uh, knowing how cartridges are ejected out of a weapon, that is not a direct science that when you see cartridges in one location, that's where the officer was at. And so there's science behind that as well. And then we look at the perception of officer equipment and how the public perceives equipment and so forth. So there are a lot of different uh, aspects that force science looks at and studies uh, and that research is peer reviewed and validated and actually published on their website. Okay. So a lot of the people on the, on the fit team, the force investigation team have, have attended pieces of that. It's a, it's kind of a multi-layered program. They offer a variety of different courses, uh, but their basic course is 40 hours, and then they have an advanced course, which is 18 weeks, and then they have several different courses for uh, various uh, people within the command staff just to have a basic understanding. Uh, They also have courses on body-worn camera limitations, de-escalation, most of which members of our force team have been through. Um, And then we've also been through uh, training with critical incident review, um, which is instructors that were actually previously with Force Science, but now have taken the instruction from Force Science, the research, and now have put it into how to conduct a criminal investigation using Force Science concepts. And so we have uh, we have used that training as well. And, and don't forget, this also helps you in any other type of investigation where shots are being fired too. Absolutely. I mean, it does not just, I mean, it... It, uh, it was made for uh, officer-involved shootings, but it certainly, I know with Jeremy and, and doing some of his cases he done, it, it flows into just a regular criminal cases. I remember one example that, that we talked about, um, uh, and it was about the perception reaction time. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's something we use in crash investigations. Um, yes. But 
but to hear it come up in shooting investigations, um, and I think there were some video breakdowns of, you know, well, it looks like this person was shot in the back. Right. But but there are some, you know, some kinematics and and perception reaction reasons for that being, you know, um, a, when, when comparing it to some video of the incident, you can actually see why, um, you know, when the threat was presented, that may not have been the same position that the body was in when the bullets fired from the gun from an officer reached them. That's absolutely true. And that's one of the studies that uh, Dr. Lewinsky talks about um, is that reaction time is being able to perceive and see that person with the weapon turning, pointing the weapon at you, and then having to not only see it, but then decide what you're going to do and then put that action or that decision into action and then motion. Mm -hmm. And then by the time that that happens, that's generally within about a second and a half and that person is already turned and their back is to you now. Um, and it happens so quickly that we can't reverse our brain in that short amount of time and stop that motion mm -hmm. before that round is discharged, striking that person in the back. So there's some science behind um, all of these things that happen. And without that, without that research and some of that explanation, I think the, the public could rightly be concerned when, when otherwise, without that context, it looks like a person was shot in the back by a law enforcement officer. Correct. So just extremely important um, work that, you know, the academic community is doing in this mm -hmm. area, but also that our investigators are doing in this area to make sure that we're providing, as you said, the best set of facts um, for the fact finders ultimately. And at least in Nebraska, that becomes the grand jury. Yes. So let's, let's kind of bring it full circle. Then we, we touched on the grand jury concept before, but what actually, you know, grand jury proceedings, at least in Nebraska are, are secret when they're taking place. Yes. But generally what, how does the process work? And you've, you've been through a number of these now. Yes. Uh, my first grand jury was actually an officer involved shooting that happened in Starby County. And I was a criminal investigator back in 2004, five, uh, when the chief was my sergeant at the time was my supervisor. And, uh, um, but yes, grand juries are secret and uh, you're called to testify and you go into a courtroom, uh, you're sworn in um, and then there's the county attorney mm -hmm. and uh, you have a panel of jurors uh, that are uh, secret and then you're, uh, you go through your testimony with uh, the attorney and then after, your, um, uh, after you've been asked questions by the attorney, then the grand jury then has the ability or the opportunity to ask you questions and they can ask you anything. And uh, once that is done, then you're excused. And then the next person is called in to testify. Jeremy also go into a little bit. Uh, we have a three person panel of investigators. Yes. too. Can you kind of go into that? Cause that's pre grand jury. Correct. It is. Yes. So the, uh, there is a three person panel uh, of law enforcement officers, uh, from various agencies who uh, get together and uh, will, will conduct the investigation or the research review um, separately, and then they will submit uh, a report to the uh, county attorney um, explaining their opinion. And so, or if they think something else needs to be done, or if something's concerning them, so you know, it's three different eyes on that to. Um, 
let the county attorney know, no, we don't see anything else. So yes, here, here's some ideas of what mm -hmm. investigative steps we think you should do. Correct. Yes. So it's a, a peer review process. Yes. Essentially um, to, to check each other's work and just another, another step at, in this case, the county attorney's disposal um, to be able to sure, ensure that everything's ready for prime time, so to speak, when it's going to that grand jury um, that we're leaving no stone unturned in, in finding the facts that are necessary to, um, to evaluate what took place. Correct. And uh, sometimes the county attorney will actually call one or two members of that three-person uh, panel to come in and supplement um, the testimony of the investigating officer uh, to just offer their opinion and show that there are other um, agencies investigating that concur with the opinion. And then ultimately, the the grand jury is going to make a recommendation on whether or not charges should be filed in this case um, to, yeah, the, to the county. If they're going to have a bill or no true bill. Yeah. So that. yeah. So they would either have a, a true bill, which mm -hmm. means that they're recommending that uh, the charges be filed for whatever ass assault or homicide or, or whatever. Correct. Or no true bill, and which would mean then that they've not found sufficient cause for charges to be filed um, from the county attorney's office. Correct. So, you know, and that's that's the reality of this, that that ultimately criminal charges are, are a possibility. And, and certainly, you know, Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd case in Minnesota is the most recent example of a law enforcement officer that's charged criminally, and, and ultimately he's in, he's in prison now um, for uh, for his conduct. And that wasn't a shooting. I mean, that was just yep. excessive force. Yeah, never never a shot fired mm -hmm. in that case. Uh, a good example, but uh, at the hands of law enforcement that that uh, that that took place. And then you know the other side, um, while this is happening, we talked about it earlier, but is the internal investigation. And so um, in that case, and we'll, we'll just use that as an example. But uh, you know he was he was fired. Um, from his job at some point, um, which is a separate and distinct process from the criminal charges that were filed against him. But um, we, we have to take a look at someone's job status from an internal side of things. And if they violated our policies, a violation of our policies may well be a violation of law too. Sometimes they're different. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes someone may, um, may be justified in what they did. Um, we may not have a true bill as far as criminal charges being filed. But sheriff, you may still elect to fire them um, because there there may have been something procedurally, maybe mm -hmm. not criminally wrong, right? But procedurally wrong that that you've decided, you know, for whatever reason, I've I've got sufficient cause to I don't want this person to be a deputy in the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office anymore. So it's possible. Well, what else are we What else are we missing? Well, the one um, thing too I'd like to say: the county attorney does not have to wait for the grand jury. Mm -hmm. To, it's to, a good point. To yeah. do charges. I mean, he, you know, if, if something is very blatantly wrong, mm -hmm. he doesn't have to wait for that. He can go ahead and press yeah. charges right away. And I suppose a new, a new thing we should mention in this, too, is is that um, while they're secret, while they're taking place, there's a new law change in Nebraska, again, seeking transparency, that now um, the the transcripts um, and, and, and some of the evidence that uh, and exhibits um, that were presented to the grand jury become public afterwards. And, yes. and that's something that we've, we've well, gone through here recently. I know a lot of people, you know, like, oh, why don't you release the video, you know, mm -hmm. right away, right away. Well, in Nebraska, the grand jury is one of the reasons why the county attorney's office does not want yes. that information out. And it kind of hand ties us because I know in other states they don't have that. Yeah. And they do get the <coughs> video out right away wow. and do that. So 
I, I want people here that you know, you know, it's not just us not wanting to. It, it's it's coming down to we have to keep it so that the grand jury stays, you know, with the correct information, and then yeah. that's all over. It's not all over the place. Otherwise, you can taint taint and, your grand yes. jury unintentionally, and, right? And that's the concern of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important that uh, we just you know we were talking about internal affairs interviews uh, following or coinciding with a criminal investigation, uh, one thing that I would like to add is that when we do these interviews, um, you know, the officer, not only is he being interviewed by the criminal investigators, but potentially he could be interviewed a second time by internal affairs if those origin, if those mm. questions at the internal affairs That's a good point. Um, hasn't been answered. Mm-hmm. Um, so internal affairs isn't present during those interviews, um, when the fit team is doing those interviews, um, but they do have the ability to go back and watch mm-hmm. those interviews. And hopefully if the interview is done um, and is thorough, mm-hmm. generally the internal affairs doesn't have to do a follow-up interview because their questions yes. are being addressed. Mm-hmm. They're getting the answers that they need to address whether or not there were any policy issues sure. um, that uh, were brought to light. And so that's important as we, we want to make sure that we minimize the amount of interviews yeah. that those officers are going through because we already know that there's going to be a criminal interview if mm-hmm. they choose to do it, but then they're going to be in a grand jury mm-hmm. and they're going to have to retell that story again. And in some of the cases that I've done, I've actually had officers breaking down in front of me in those criminal interviews mm-hmm. because they're recounting that traumatic experience and they're going to do it again during that grand jury interview. So um, that's another thing that's very unique about our job is that off, you know, when we interview a suspect, generally it's one time. Right. Um, but with officers, they're having to recount and relive that experience sometimes two, maybe three times. And we try to keep that as minimal as we can. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good point. And one thing we've never experienced is an officer saying, I don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. No, we haven't. And but they do have that right. Yes. And so that's when the uh, internal affairs and the Garrity and all that comes into play at that time. Yeah. To compel them to uh, talk. But you know, again, can't use compelled statements in in the criminal courts. Right. But uh, but yeah, and and it comes down just the. The, the goals of a, of a criminal investigator and an internal investigator are different. Um, we're looking at, and speaking from my history, from internal affairs, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're looking at agency policy. We're looking at agency procedures. We're, we're also looking at, at that from, you know, a training lens of is there something that we need to do differently as an agency uh, to maybe have a better outcome from these things, whether it's from de-escalation, whether it's from a standpoint of officer safety, um, maybe, it, maybe it was an equipment malfunction. Um, there are, are things that we're looking at just a, a different angle that we're approaching the same set of facts from because we're looking, looking at it for different reasons. Well, one of the new eances that, you know, we haven't had an experience with a whole lot is, uh, ambushes on yes. law enforcement. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that there's an, another example where training and all that can come in to, you know, we, we teach our officers, you know, don't sit there by yourself or, you know, make sure you could see and keep uh, park where there's nobody so you can see anybody coming up on you and things of that nature. Because it just has 
the sad thing is it happens and it happens too often. Yeah. Well, this is kind of part one um, because sometime we're going to have to do part two. We could do an entirely different episode on, you know, steps that we take then um, after because, uh, you know, this is all, this is all, you know, stuff that's leading up to essentially determine whether or not an officer did something wrong. But then we have a whole nother policy and program as far as, you know, caring for our officers afterwards and what we do for them for critical incidents response and their mental health. And we'll, we'll cover that in a future episode. But, uh, Jeremy, just really appreciate you taking time today to, uh, to walk us through this process. Hopefully this will be helpful to members of the public, um, you know, whether now or in the future, because unfortunately it's just a matter of when one of these is going to happen again. Um, sadly, we know that another one's going to happen sometime, hopefully, hopefully not any sooner than it needs to. Um, but hopefully this will provide people a little bit of background as to why we do what we do. You know, and I think that I think the most, well, one of the important things is some people think that law enforcement officers live to shoot somebody. Right. And that's why they become a cop. And that's, that there, there, there's nothing further from the truth. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the last thing an officer wants to do is to use lethal force, um, but must be prepared to do so when necessary. So it's, yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's a life changing experience for the officer. There's no question about it. Yeah, and none of us wake up in the morning going, "Oh boy, I hope I can get into a shooting." That that that's just not what what it is. It's and a bad bad yeah. day. It bad day a bad, for everybody. It, it, and it changes people's lives. And um, you know. As, as you know, sometimes it changes the office to the point that they can't go on and do this job yep. ever again. And and uh, that's the reason why when you were talking about the wellness and things is we're trying to learn the best way so that we can keep a good employee and get them back. That is all the time that we have for today's episode of the 902 podcast. We want to be sure that you uh, subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can catch all of our past and future episodes. You can also reach out to us on social media at LSO Nebraska on Facebook, Instagram, X, LinkedIn, YouTube, at LSO Nebraska. You can also shoot us an email, LSO at Lancaster.ne.gov. And most importantly, if you're interested in a career opportunity with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office, be sure to reach out at www.joinlso.com where you'll find information about sworn deputy opportunities but also for our civilian professional staff. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. We'll catch you next time.